Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. Well, we come to God's Word this morning. I encourage you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. And we've uh, finished up our Ephesians, our, our Ephesians series. And a number of you have asked me, well, where are we turning next? What is our next series? And I can tell you that the, the next book of the Bible that we're going to work through is the book of Judges. And I'm looking forward to that. But before we jump into Judges, after discussion with our fellow pastors and with our session... I'm going to take three weeks to do a a short mini-series on money and giving. And there's a couple of reasons for this. Part of the reason for this, of course, is that the Bible talks constantly about money. And my hope is that this series will help us as a congregation to grow in a gospel-shaped view of our money in all areas of life. But of course, there's a reason for doing this series right now as well. As you know, we've been discussing our current building needs that are facing Westminster because the Lord has blessed us in a number of ways and because we see the importance of the church right now in our cultural moment in the years to come. And in the light of this vision and of these needs and with your feedback, we've already begun a a capital campaign with an official kickoff in a few weeks. But that means that in the next six months or so, Money in buildings are going to take a much larger role in our congregational life than they typically do. And if we're going to talk more than normal about money in buildings, there are many dangers to our hearts, many dangers of idolatry that can come and face us. And so I want to take the opportunity right up front to look at three passages of Scripture that will help us, I hope, individually and as a congregation, to keep our eyes and our hearts fixed on Christ and fixed on God's word and all our actions and motivations in the months to come. So with that said, let's turn to Matthew 6 and read verses 19 through 24 as we focus this morning on our attitude towards money. Hear the words of Jesus. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness! No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would be with us this morning as we hear from your word. We thank you for these words that your spirit inspired, and now we pray that your spirit would apply it to our hearts and our lives, and we pray it. In Christ's name, amen. In 1922, a water boy 
tripped on a stone in Egypt. And this tripped up water boy led to what many consider the most significant archaeological find of the last century. So we're talking about the tomb of King Tutankhamun. The archaeologists found in this tomb through four rooms a host of artifacts buried with the 18-year-old king, from shrines and statues to chariots to paddles for boats to food and wine and oil packaged in containers to jewelry and treasure. Of course, in addition to what was found in the tomb, they quickly realized that the tomb had been robbed at least twice and an estimated 60% of the valuables that King Tut had buried had likely already been stolen. And so if you add this 60% of what was stolen to what was found, including hundreds of pounds of gold and of treasures, of gemstones, as well as practical goods, we have an impressive picture of King Tut's efforts to lay up for himself treasures for heaven. Unfortunately, 3,000 years later, King Tut's efforts were exposed as a failure because there lay all the treasure still here on earth, buried under the sand, with rust at work and thieves having broken in and stolen. Now the problem was not at all in King Tut's desire to lay up treasures in heaven. The problem was how he thought he could go about doing that. And we find in Jesus' words here in Matthew 6, a summons to lay up treasure in heaven. And as we read through these verses, Jesus communicates for us one key principle and three implications of that principle. And I want to look at these this morning. Let's start with the principle. One key principle. Jesus' main point in this passage, I think, boils down to this. Each one of us will either be focused on and find our purpose in treasures of this world or in serving God. Our hearts can't belong to both. And Jesus restates this main point in three different ways. First, in verses 19 through 21, Jesus calls us not to lay up for ourselves treasures on earth where rust destroys and thieves steal, but to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven which will never be taken away. Now here, of course, Jesus is not condemning the use of money. Instead, he's forcing us to ask, what do I value? And so what will I use my money to obtain? Will I spend it on treasures and pleasures and a comfortable lifestyle and savings large enough to make me feel secure in this life? Or will my money go to lay up treasures in heaven? Now, we probably have a fairly concrete idea of what treasures on earth are, but maybe treasures in heaven is a little bit less clear. And Jesus doesn't offer us a definition here, but I think that we can safely say that treasures in heaven are those things which last to eternity. And God's word does tell us what those things are. Maybe you think of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, who talks about sharing the gospel and of discipleship, of planting and watering the seed of God's word and the good news of eternal life. And Paul says that this is building on the foundation of Jesus Christ, which will survive the last day and lead to reward in eternity. Or maybe you think of 1 Corinthians 13, 13, where Paul says that faith, 
hope, and love, these three abide forever. Or maybe you think of Paul in 2 Timothy 4, 6-8, through talking about his life being poured out like an offering in the work of God in his kingdom, so that there is laid up for him a crown of righteousness on the last day. I think if we take these passages of scripture, we can summarize by saying that treasures in heaven are those things we invest in now that will last in eternity. Things like nurturing Christ-like character. Things like sacrificial obedience to God for the sake of his kingdom. Things like caring for the needs of God's people and doing or supporting the preaching of the gospel that leads to the salvation of souls and the building of his kingdom. These are the things that Jesus calls us to value and the things that we are to use our money and our possessions for here on earth. Of course, Jesus' point is not that we should have no possessions. Jesus' point is not that we shouldn't wisely make provision for the future, nor that we should not enjoy the good things that the Lord provides in this life. In fact, Scripture commends all three of those things. But Jesus' point, as John Stott puts it, is that we should not aim for the accumulation of goods in this life, nor should we spend our energies focusing on material goods of this world or finding our purpose or security in goods in this world. Rather, we should eagerly use the earthly possessions we have to invest in heavenly treasures that will remain for eternity. The well-known Christian author Randy Alcorn, many of you know the name Randy Alcorn, he put it this way, he said, Jesus is the best investment advisor ever. And he tells us once and for all to switch all of our funds from earth which is a volatile investment guaranteed to end with zero market value, to heaven, which is totally dependable, insured by God himself, and guaranteed to bring value and joy forever. And so Jesus' point here in this first verses is this, we can use our money to secure treasures on earth or to secure treasures in heaven, but one will be destroyed and only one will yield everlasting reward. Jesus then addresses the same point a second way in verses 22 to 23, where he says that a good eye brings light to your whole body, whereas a bad eye makes your whole body full of darkness. Now these verses may be a bit more obscure for us, but I think it's helpful if we remember that your eye was commonly used to refer to what your focus is on. So Psalm 119.19, for instance, talks about fixing our eyes on God's commandments, directing our, our focus and attention and vision to his commandments. Whereas an evil eye typically brings up things like greed and covetousness. Maybe you think of Deuteronomy 15.9, which condemns a man whose eye looks begrudgingly on his poor brother, calculating the year of jubilee, and determining not to help him in his time of need because it is not financially advantageous for us. So Jesus' comment here is about our vision and focus. Either our eye will be healthy, focused on what honors the Lord, with the result that our whole being has a clear purpose, aimed at all of our desires and actions at doing the Lord's work and honoring him. Or our eye will be bad, focused on ourselves, with the result that our whole being is blinded by materialism and what we want in this life. 
And if that is the case, Jesus says, how great is the darkness of that person's life. So once again, the key point is either we'll be focused on the Lord, our eye fixed on the light and on who he is, or on ourselves. And our focus, whichever it is, will affect our whole being. Then Jesus offers a third comment in verse 24. And here he makes the two alternatives even more stark. Jesus says in verse 24, no one can serve two masters. It's just not possible. And now maybe, maybe one might say, well, you know, I, I've had two jobs before and I can kind of weigh figuring out how to serve two employers. But Jesus isn't talking about employment alone. He's talking about servants. And a servant owes his whole being, his whole obedience to a master. And you can only give your whole self, your whole priority of obedience to one master. Two masters can't have the full claim on who you are and on your full obedience. I think of it kind of like being a spy during the Cold War. You might be a spy for the United States stealing secrets from Russia. Or you might be a double agent pretending to do that but actually passing on secrets to Russia. But you can't be both. You can't genuinely be seeking to serve both the United States and Russia. It's one or the other. And Jesus is saying a similar thing when it comes to God and the things of this world. Our heart can only belong to one of them. Now, of course, sometimes we do try to serve God and aim to get a lot of good things for ourselves. We do like to kind of straddle the fence and hope to get the benefits of, of both worlds. That's what the rich young ruler was doing, wasn't it? When he came to Jesus, he believed in God. He came to Jesus. He wanted to know about eternal life. He had interest in all those things, but his heart also deeply loved his money. He wanted the blessings of both heaven and his wealth here on earth. I think we can be prone to the same thing. I know how much my heart can be torn and say, yes, I want to serve God, but it's still drawn to the things of this world. But of course, Jesus knew the rich young ruler's heart couldn't be in love with both God and his money. And he knows our hearts and knows they can't belong to both as well. Because as John Stott summarized, he said, anybody who divides his allegiance between God and money has already abandoned his allegiance to God. We might, say, be able to serve both sports and arts, give our attention to both, because neither of them is God. But when we talk about God, he demands our wholehearted allegiance because he's God. Maybe you think of Isaiah 42, 8. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other. And so Stott says, because he is God, to try to share him with other loyalties is already to have opted for idolatry. And isn't that the lesson that Israel learned so often through the Old Testament? This is why Jesus called the rich young ruler, if you would like eternal life, you must give up your love of money in exchange for a new love for your God and Savior. Because we are either completely given fully to God, serving him and the honor of his name with our whole selves and all that we have, or we are not worshiping him as his name deserves. In each of these comments then, three ways Jesus reinforces his same main point. 
Each one of us will either find our purpose and satisfaction and aim in the treasures of this world or in serving God and giving our whole selves and all that we have for his kingdom. And of course, this is not meant to say that we will never spend money on something on this earth. Again, scripture says we must provide for our families. We are to set aside wisely for the future so that we're not a burden on others. But the point is our hearts. And I think that's why Jesus doesn't give us percentages or amounts here. He doesn't say this whole heart issue can be solved if you give at least this much. He doesn't give us those percentages because the question is about our hearts and what they desire and who they serve. And our hearts are to belong only and fully to God and not to this earth. So Jesus' question in this passage is, will we serve and pursue earth or heaven, in light or in darkness, for God or for money? That's the question Jesus asks. Now, based on this point, though, there are three implications that I think Jesus makes in this passage, and I want to look at those in the remainder of our time. The first is found there in verse 21, where Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And the implication is this. We can say whatever we want about who we're serving. We can say whatever we want about whether we're serving God or money, but the truth will be seen in how we spend our money. For where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. You know, I think that's why Jesus is constantly talking to the crowds and his disciples about money. In fact, when Jesus and John the Baptist are asked how to live life in order to demonstrate repentance or gain the kingdom of heaven, have you ever noticed how many times their answers come back to money? John the Baptist, when he was asked, what shall we do? How shall we demonstrate the fruits of repentance? He says things like, give clothes, uh, give clothes and food to the poor. Don't pocket extra money. Be content with your wages and don't extort money. Jesus says things like, if you want to gain the kingdom of heaven, sell all that you have and give to the poor. Follow me. What leads Jesus to tell Zacchaeus that he has found salvation? It's Jesus' declaration, look, Lord, I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Now, what's going on here? Are Jesus and John the Baptist saying salvation's found if you give enough money away? Of course not. They're not saying that salvation is dependent upon that at all. But Jesus is saying that living life for ourselves is most often clearly seen in how we use our money. And a change in our hearts such that we are now following and serving the Lord will also very often be seen in what we do with our money. Because money reveals our hearts. This is why, of course, repentance and faith is necessary. How will we see that? What will the test cases be? And often the way we use our money is where Jesus and John the Baptist point us for a litmus test. And I think this is also why a capital campaign brings extra danger to us as a congregation. Because talk of money and buildings can draw our hearts to idolatry as well as reveal idolatry. We may love our money and the security that our possessions bring more than we realize, and that may be exposed when we're asked to give. But on the other hand, we may give generously for the wrong reasons. 
We may give generously because of idolatries, either because of a status that it gives us or it makes us feel like we're doing enough to please God. Or another very real danger for each one of us as leaders, but also for all of us as a congregation, is the idol of success and growth. We can start talking about getting a bigger building for Westminster and all that Westminster is and the good things about it. And before long, we're giving generously to an idol of Westminster and a building instead of to God. There are so many ways that this conversation can press our hearts. And that's why we need to hear this implication. And we have to watch what our money reveals about our hearts. But the second implication comes in verses 19 through 20. Jesus declares that money can either be wasted or invested. When he says, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where rust destroys and thieves steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy nor thieves break in and steal. Because while money can pull our hearts into sin, Jesus' point here is not that money and possessions are bad. His point is that they're just completely useless if they're spent on this life. And we were just at the beach a couple of weeks ago. And I think Jesus' point is kind of like the point I make sometimes when my kids are making a sandcastle, but they don't know the direction the tide's moving. And so you might say, you know, that's great that you're putting all that work into that sandcastle, but you might want to bring it further up on the beach. They might say, well, no, this is going really well. I'm really enjoying this. I'm putting a lot of, my castle's looking great. I'm sticking right here. And of course, it's only 15 or 20 minutes later when a particularly large wave coming on the rising tide flattens the sandcastle and all the work they've done. And what's left but a pile of sand. And Jesus' point is that laying up treasures in this life is no better. Which is why Jesus says in Luke 12, 20, of the man who built bigger barns to hold all of his stuff, he says, no, that is foolish. For this very night, your soul is required of you. And you can't take your barns with you. But while spending our money on this life is a waste, using money in this life to invest in the kingdom of God is laying up blessings and rewards that will be given by God himself on the last day and last for all of eternity. And I think you have a striking picture of this in Egypt itself. Because within driving distance of King Tut's tomb, there's another tomb. It's a grave actually. And this grave is just six feet of dirt, nothing else. And all that's sitting on this grave is a small stone marking the spot with the name William Borden. Whereas King Tut had laid up four rooms full of treasure for himself, there was nothing here except a marker. Borden was the son of a wealthy family and he became a Christian as a child in Chicago. He graduated from the Hill School right here in Pottstown, Pennsylvania. His family, as a graduation gift, gave him a trip around the world. Now, some of you high school seniors may want to talk to your parents about that idea this afternoon. But much to the dismay of his father, who hoped that William would come and be heir to his fortune and his business, the trip around the world actually sparked Borden's interest in missions. He went to Yale and spent his four years at Yale leading Bible studies leading prayer groups and sharing the gospel such that one pastor said that Borden was one of the greatest Christian leaders that he knew because of his zeal to pray for missions and share the gospel. But even in his early 20s, Borden was already 
refusing to spend money on himself. He refused to even buy a car for himself, as many would have expected, and instead was already giving hundreds of thousands of dollars in 1910 money to missions. Borden decided to go and share the gospel himself, aiming for China. But first he went to Egypt to learn more about Muslim culture and about missions. And there in Egypt, after just a couple of months, he contracted meningitis and died at the age of 25. But it's said that in his Bible, Borden wrote these words, no reserve, no retreat, no regret. Nor would he need to, because he had laid up his treasures in heaven, and they will last forever. So that's the second implication. Money spent in this life is useless, but that invested in the kingdom has eternal value. And that leads to the final implication of Jesus' words this morning in verse 24. Jesus says there that no matter which master we choose, he says you can either serve God or money, not both. But notice that whichever we choose, whether we choose to serve God or money, we're still not the master. We're still a servant. And if we do choose to serve God, as I hope that we do, the conclusion is clear. He is the master, and he is the rightful owner of all things. Nothing we have, none of our money, none of our possessions are ours by right. They are just things that God has given us to use as stewards of his things for the sake of his kingdom. You know, all of the money that God has given us is not ours, it's God's. This building that God has given us, it's not Westminster's, it's God's. Anything we build in the future, it's not ours, it's the Lord's. But buildings and money are just tools. They're tools that God has entrusted to us to use for his purposes and his glory and his kingdom. And just like no fund manager should start to look at his client's money as his, but only ask, how can I best invest this to bring a return? So we, if all of our things belong to the Lord, have only to ask one question. How can I best use my stuff on earth for his kingdom, for his people, and his purposes? This is the main point and the implications, I think, of this passage As we end, let me take just a minute, though, to step back from the details and look at this passage as a whole. Because when it comes right down to it, this passage is not primarily about beating us up over budgets. This passage is about the gospel. This passage is a call away from the futile drive for delights in this life and ourselves. For Jesus is announcing a radical peace hope and joy that are found only in following him and when Jesus came and died on the cross for our sins and rose again for our salvation so that instead of God's wrath we receive God's grace and his love and adoption as his sons and daughters our hearts are set free who needs this stuff anymore who needs the rat race we have peace with God and hope of eternal life with him Who needs pleasures and treasures on this earth? We have mansions of glory waiting for us in heaven. Who needs the fragile security that money says it offers? Our heavenly Father, who is greater than all, holds us in the palm of his hand. And this peace and this freedom and joy found in salvation are offered by Christ. They call our hearts to true joy, to true freedom. That doesn't need the things of this world.
and a heart that understands what Christ has done for it is often tangibly seen in statements like, Look, Lord, you are all my joy and all I need, so I give away half of what I have and restore fourfold of anything I've taken. The gospel really does change how we think about money because it really does change our hearts and who we are. And putting this passage into practice, while it may involve changing our budgets, it starts with examining our hearts. Do we know our sin and our need of a savior? Have we seen Christ for who he is, the son of God who went to the cross and paid the penalty for all my sin, who gave all of himself to redeem his people for the glory of God's name and God's kingdom? If you're here this morning and and you have not personally trusted Christ as your savior, I invite you to do that this morning, to repent of living for yourself, to put your faith in him and find your burden lifted and your joy made full in Jesus. But if you have trusted Christ, isn't our greatest desire and joy now to serve him? With all of our hearts, with all of our souls, with all of our minds, with all of our strength, with all that we have, because he is our greatest love. And isn't it astounding that in light of what Jesus has done for us, he can now offer us the invitation that he offers in this passage? Think of what his invitation is. Jesus invites us to take something that is of no lasting good whatsoever and doesn't even belong to us in the first place and use it to glorify God and lay up treasures that last eternity. What an invitation. What an invitation for us to take. Because as one famous missionary and martyr famously put it, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let's pray. Our God, how we thank you for this passage of Scripture. How we acknowledge that as we live in America in 2021, in a country with so much, with money all around us and materialistic desires pulling at our hearts, we know how much they do that. Father, how I pray that this passage would free us from that. It would free us from ourselves and our desires here on earth and remind us of the wealth that's been offered to us in Christ Jesus. Eternal life and redemption in him. And may our hearts be set free that we might eagerly take this invitation to use all that we are and all that we have to invest for your glory and your kingdom for the honor of your name. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.